This is just to remind me to say a big thank you to those who helped sponsor the walkers on our Huron Chapel team for coldest night of the year last night. And thanks to Patty and uh, Lynn and Jeannie and Deanna for walking on our team and everybody who contributed. Our team reached our goal of $500 and the United Way here in Perth, uh, the Goderich Homelessness Initiative, was aiming for $30,000. I think they raised, is it $42,000? So they overshot their target. So praise God for that. Uh, another praise item on a more personal note, I'm happy to report, although I'm sad to be leaving Blythe, I'm happy to report yesterday signed a uh, firm cash offer to sell my place in Blythe. So praise God that's dealt with. And big thank you to Patty, uh, who's not here. She's horsing around today. It's a two-day horse clinic in Varna. She's got her horse there and learning lots of good things there. Patty was a big help in helping clear out the house and get it ready for sale. Just a wonderful job. And thanks to Dave, our realtor, who did a great job on that end. The other day, my wife and I were driving up from Sarnia to Gardish along Highway 21 along the shore. We were reflecting on the number of for sale signs and how some cottage owners are becoming nervous because of high water levels in the lake and the ensuing shoreline erosion. We've heard stories of boathouses or stairs being washed away. Perhaps those listing their places for sale are wanting to move to more solid ground, a place that's less sandy and shifting. Life's unpredictability can be a bit like that. Not long ago, I was on a cruise ship many miles away from North America when we heard news of three other cruise ships being quarantined due to the COVID-19 virus. As a rumor, cruise ships can be a bit like petri dishes when there are disease outbreaks. You can't avoid contact. It makes those aboard more susceptible. We ended up not being quarantined ourselves, thankfully, although management was careful to screen those boarding, have you been to mainland China, and lay on additional hand sanitation stations. News article this past week reported that COVID-19 appears to be more infectious than either SARS or MERS, although with a lower mortality rate, around 2%, but it likely affects more of the population overall. Folks in some Asian cities are understandably a bit panicky. Life is fragile. A longtime friend who for years attended the same Bible study, a woman I've always viewed as positive and upbeat, pleasant to be around, is preparing herself for breast cancer surgery this coming Tuesday. We're thankful for the prospect of treatment and hope for a good outcome, but it's another reminder that our health is not to be taken for granted. Longevity is not guaranteed. Then there are the emotional storms that sometimes rage in life and leave us feeling a little beat up. Friends fail us. Partners prove forgetful or distant. Family members misunderstand or criticize us and we're left shaking our head. How did that ever come about? I sure didn't see that one coming. As Jesus comes to the conclusion of his great Sermon on the Mount, we see him alluding to the storms of life and their effect. In the parable of the wise and foolish builders, it's not a question of which one sailed through life without encountering difficulty. Both were subject to similar troubles. Verses 25 and 27. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, both the foolish person and the wise person. What about you? Do you find yourself in the midst of one of life's storms, 
right now? Is it due to people or circumstances? What's making you feel beat up? Where is the wind pressuring? Maybe you'd like to come forward for prayer with a member of our prayer team after the service. Sometimes even just knowing another person appears and is praying for you in your mind can make a big difference. Life application Bible comments on verse 26. Like a house of cards, the fool's life crumbles. Most people do not deliberately seek to build on a false or inferior foundation. Instead, they just don't think about their life's purpose. Many people are headed for destruction, not out of stubbornness, but out of thoughtlessness. Part of our responsibility as believers is to help others stop and think about where their lives are headed and to point out the consequences of ignoring Christ's message. Maybe the Lord arranged for you to be here this morning, hearing this message, to prompt you to think about just that. What foundation are you building your life upon? Is it one rugged enough to stand up to life's storms? We want to avoid what happened to the foolish builder in verse 27. The house fell with a great crash. As we travel through life, the landscape is strewn with the wreckage of individual lives and households. Who do you know that's been through a painful crash and burn? What's Jesus teaching us that can help us avoid all that pain and damage? Today's passage asserts that Jesus' teaching is connected to that unshakable foundation that we need in our lives. Verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. These words of mine. Hmm. Now that's quite a claim. Just going to try moving that a little bit, getting a little interference there. What is it about Jesus' words that can make such a difference in our lives? He also said in John 6.63, The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Way of Jesus saying number five, I'm learning the teachings of Jesus. So, Why bother with the Bible at all? Someone may object, but how do we know the Bible is true? I'll lay out briefly five reasons. The witness of the apostles, of the church, archaeology and science, the authority of Jesus himself, and Scripture's own self-authentication. First, the witness of the earliest eyewitnesses, the original apostles. These are the people who wrote, or whose collaborators wrote, in the case of Mark and Peter, the manuscripts behind the Bible translations we have today. When a police officer is investigating an incident, who do they want to talk to most? Whose account is most authoritative in court? The eyewitnesses, those who were there and saw with their own eyes what happened. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God-breathed, inspired. God oversaw the writing of the manuscripts in such a way that the meaning of what he wanted to get across was communicated. Scripture is then our standard for correction and guidance in life. Not just Paul, but the Apostle Peter also touches on this topic. 2 Peter 1.16 on. 
We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, talking about, probably about the transfiguration. Of all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's as if Peter emphasizing, we were right there. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard what was happening. Further, those who write scripture are carried along, borne along like a sailing ship driven by the wind, by the Holy Spirit. It's not made up, not cleverly invented. In uh, 3.16, Peter adds about Paul's epistles. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. See what he did there? He classed Paul's writing in with scripture. As even the apostle Peter elevates Paul's writing to the status of scripture. When our faith is challenged, I find it helpful to consider how the first eyewitnesses were martyred maintaining the factuality of what they proclaimed. If it were a conspiracy based on fiction, someone would have squealed. People don't die for what they know to be a lie. Second, there's the testimony of the church down through the ages. Westminster Confession of 1647 has this in part to say about the reliability of Scripture. Part four, the, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Paragraph five, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Don't you love these long sentences back then? Yet, sentence isn't done yet, yet, Notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. End quote. Thank you for bearing with me. That's kind of a long quote from 1647, but you get the general gist. You can see these reformers who were breaking new ground and willing to suffer for their convictions. Some of them died because of these shifts, had a very high view of Scripture. We'll come back to some of what they say later. Our own denomination, EMCC, puts it in a bit more modern terminology. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is divinely inspired, infallible, 
entirely trustworthy, and the only final authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Bible is originally written under the inspiration and supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit by human authors, is the Word of God, the supreme source of truth for Christian belief. The Bible reveals who God is, exposes who we are in light of His holiness, proclaims God's merciful salvation, and teaches and trains Christ's followers how to grow in relationship with God and others. End quote. Note such terms as inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, final authority, supreme source of truth for Christian belief. If you want to get to know God better, get to know your Bible. It's a major means of hearing him speak to you. Now, uh, just a little bit of a break. Could the kids come up? I just wanted to show them some of the, the Bibles I've got up here. Kids, come on up. I'd like to share this with you talk about the church and not here this section is not just the church out there this is the church this is my family church so I just wanted to share some of this personal stuff come on up kids a little bit come on come on come on, come on. this Bible if you look back this is an old 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 one uh, do you, can you read who, who, who's it whose Bible is it can you read Dougie no can you read who, who's the name William and Eliza Dow. Now, William and Eliza were my father's grandparents. So my father was born in 1920, 100 years ago. And this is his grandparents. So they were born back in 19... He was born in 1950, 1851. This Bible is from 1890, roughly. You see the word, uh, 1892 there. So this is uh, over 100 years old, uh, this Bible here. And now um, my mom has written some of the, the dates. That's the, when they were, my, these people that, whose Bible this was, they were married. And then these are the, the marriages that have gone on in my, my dad's family and so on down through the years. So it makes it very kind of special uh, book, a real keepsake that way. Lots of pictures in that in that one. This one, this is a King James, which is a little bit hard to read. I wouldn't recommend you get a King James these days. Somebody might give me backlash about that, but <laughs> I would, I'd recommend a more modern translation. This was, to me, I'm Ernest Waddle, Walter Dow. What year? What year was that? Christmas? 1964. Okay, who's good at math? I was born in 56. This was in 64, so how old was I? Okay, 64, take away 56, anybody? Come on. Eight. I was eight years old. This is, I'm talking to you generations of faith people out there, faith at home, yeah. So this is my very first Bible from my parents, has the word, uh, uh, sayings of Jesus in red there. Uh, a couple years later, this is a new English Bible, to Ernest Dow with all my love, Grandpa, Christmas 1966. So I was 10 my grandpa gave me that was my mom's dad. When I went to school, this is going way back, I know, uh, so we studied our little Gospels of John, which were, uh, this was up to about grade four or so. So this was up till around, I was 10 years old or so. But we actually studied this in public school. That was, that's too bad that era has passed. 
Uh, this one, some of you probably got these, but it may not have been this color. Uh, this is distributed by, can you read, what, who, who gave me that? Can you read that word there in caps? Gideons? This is from the Gideons, and this, they came around to our schools, and they gave everybody a little New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. This is the Canadian Centennial Edition, 1967. So it was kind of a special color there. This one was given to me by my church, by Roy's Church Sunday School, 1968. So I would have been 12, if you're following along. <laughs> for memorizing 315 Bible verses. Now, I didn't memorize them all at once. We, we had a little chart and we'd do a section and then my mom would check me on them. And then I would go across the road to my grandmother, who seemed really, really old at the time, but I would say them to my grandmother, and she would check me on my Bible verses. And when I'd done that section, I got a little star and put it on the chart and so on. When we'd done all the sections, we got a Bible given to us. This is a Revised Standard Version. Uh, that's the main thing. This, this one I'll talk about a little bit later. This is, this is Greek over on that side. You see the funny characters? That was the language that the New Testament, like uh, that the apostles, uh, Jesus' uh, followers, they would have written in Greek. And so that's how we, the Bible goes way back to those times. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to show, show you some of those things. So that overall was the witness of the church, not just Westminster Confession, kind of start cheese stuff like that, and EMC doctrinal, but this is my family church. They were witness down through my life. Third, there's the evidence of archaeology and scientific study. Nicky Gumbel of Alpha Fame does an excellent job in his little book, Questions of Life, showing how research has demonstrated the reliability of the New Testament compared to other well-accepted historic documents. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone. Textual critics use these and the variants to get back to what was probably almost exactly the original version. Now, what I didn't show the kids too closely, but if you look in, you can come up after and see this, but on the bottom of the page of the Greek, you see all those little teeny, teeny, tiny writing? That's called the apparatus. Not too many books have an apparatus, but this book has an apparatus. And that goes through and shows how they picked amongst the different. There's papyri, which are the very, very oldest uh, ones that they actually took sheepskin. And, and Well, no, papyrus. I'm talking about parchment there. Papyrus was reeds that they pressed into paper. Um, and then uh, there's older ones, that there's, there's not quite so old ones that are uh, manuscripts in Greek and Latin, and the textual critics go through and they have to sort through which is the best reading, and sometimes the best reading is the hardest one, because uh, if a copyist came along and said, oh, well, I think I can do better than that, then the textual critics will throw that one out because uh, they want to get back to the actual original. Anyways, a lot of scientific work goes into that. And this is the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. So if you really want to know what a Greek word means, this book goes through and goes through 
other authors of the time showing how the Greek the, the word was used, so that's, that's how we get to its meaning, what it meant back in that time. Ah, in my workout today. Okay, Sir Frederick Kenyon, a leading scholar in this area, writes, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, some might object that minor variances in details bring into question the truthfulness of the accounts, such as how many angels were actually at the empty tomb. But criminologists will tell you such minor variances actually bolster the truthfulness of eyewitness accounts because it shows the reports weren't just copied. Now, we love to copy and paste. That's not what was going on. Fourth, consider the authority of Jesus himself. What was the master's attitude towards Scripture? He is Lord of the Sabbath. He's also Lord of Scripture, authoritative over it as well. The end of today's reading, Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had what? Authority and not as their teachers of the law. Recall the sayings earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So we always interpret scripture in light of Jesus' teachings. Did Jesus have a high view of the Bible? Towards the end of John 10, Jesus is in a heated argument with Jews who are ready to stone him for blasphemy. His life is hanging by a thread. They've already picked up stones to finish the job. So he'd be choosing his words carefully. He quotes from Psalm 82 and then adds almost as a sidebar, John 10, 35, and the scripture cannot be broken. John 17, Jesus is praying with his disciples for probably the last time before he's arrested. He says to the Father, John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is the reference point, the benchmark, even for God's son himself. Jesus vouches for God's word as truth. Note, too, how Jesus relies on Scripture at crucial moments. Matthew 4 is being tempted repeatedly by Satan. How does he respond? By quoting memorized Scripture. Matthew 4, 4, 7, and 10. It is written. It is also written. It is written. One of Jesus' sharpest rebukes to the religious authorities of his day was that they either minimized or did not even know Scripture. Matthew 22, he's being challenged by the Sadducees about the resurrection. Verse 29, Jesus replied, You're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Another time in Mark 7, he's criticized by the Pharisees and teachers of the law because the disciples were eating food with unwashed hands. He rebukes them, Mark 7, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So he's emphasizing how important it is to keep scriptural truth a priority over our own practices and preferences. At key moments when his earthly future is in utmost jeopardy, Jesus stakes his life upon the reliability of scripture. Matthew 26, he's being arrested, yet blocks an attempt by his followers to fend off the mob with a sword. Why? 
verses 53 and 56. He says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And a little later, But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted Him and fled. Obviously, this utter commitment to Scripture's trajectory is too much for them. Get me out of here! Why would he yield his very life when he could have gotten away so that Scripture's prophecy would come true? Obviously, even though Jesus is Lord of Scripture, the Bible is not to be a paper pope. We're to interpret every passage in light of Jesus' supreme revelation of God's being and nature the Son of Man still had an extremely high view of Scripture, relying on it from first to last in his earthly journey. He understood his life to be a fulfillment of Scripture. Yet, he is Lord of all. The Bible is a witness, a pointer to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Let's say this one together. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Fifth, there's Scripture's own self-authenticating. Everybody say self-authenticating. Self-authenticating. Thank you. Sorry, pardon the big word. If that's too much for you, for you maybe think of it as try it, you'll like it. Self-authenticating just means Scripture backs itself up. Now, if that sounds a little circular in reasoning, it is, and for a reason. We run into a philosophical problem here. Scripture is God's word written and ultimately authoritative. What more authoritative thing could there be to back it up? That would make that other thing more authoritative than Scripture. Deep conviction about the trustworthiness of the Bible comes in the reading of it by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. We encounter it as God's living word speaking straight into our lives, kind of like the Holy Spirit standing behind us, reading aloud to us as the author himself. It's the book that reads us. Here's a quote from John Piper's book, A Peculiar Glory, How the Christian Scriptures Reveal Their Complete Truthfulness, in which he speaks of reformer John Calvin's experience. Piper says, Two things came together for Calvin to give him a saving knowledge of God, Scripture itself and the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Neither alone suffices to save. But how does this actually work? What does the Spirit do? The answer is not that the Spirit gives us added revelation to what is in Scripture, but that he awakens us as from the dead to see and taste the divine reality of God in Scripture, which authenticates it as God's own word. Calvin says, our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. Quote from Calvin. There's the key for Calvin, Piper says. The witness of God to Scripture is the immediate, unassailable, life-giving revelation of the mind of the majesty of God, manifest in the Scriptures themselves. Quote. In other words, as you read it, God Himself validates His Word. His word is not like our mere human word. It's living, active. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
James 1.25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The, the perfect law that gives freedom as we look intently into it. Peter kind of points to this self-authenticating quality of Scripture in different language. 2 Peter 1.19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. As we read it, we become illuminated. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? Simply speaking. God's Word is powerful, active. It creates the reality it refers to. Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. 1.6, God said. 1.9, God said, and so on for each of the six days of creation. Paul writes of this difference in quality between God's Word and our human words in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe, or is set in operation. It performs its work. Do you remember Jesus' interaction with a person who Jesus remarked had greater faith than anyone in Israel? It's kind of a Jesus definition of great faith. Look at this person. It was the Roman centurion whose servant was sick and about to die in Luke 7. Jesus was on his way to heal the servant when the centurion sent word that he was unworthy to have Jesus come. But since he was a man under authority, with soldiers under him, he figured Jesus had the power to simply give the command and it would happen. Luke 7, 7. But say the word and my servant will be healed. God's word spoken carries with it the power for it to be performed. So that's why we can say as someone reads Scripture, they find it to be self-authenticating. The Spirit's voice penetrates to the division of soul and spirit. We sense our heart's attitudes are being exposed and judged. As I said before, it's the book that reads us. Back to our text for today. I'm sorry, that was kind of a long excursus, but I hope you bore with me. That's how important Scripture is in our lives. Back to our text for today, Jesus says the wise person isn't just the one who hears these words of mine. The foolish person also does that, verses 24 and 26. So what is it then that distinguishes between the wise and foolish person? Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. By contrast, the wise person hears and puts Jesus' words into practice, verse 24. You can talk all day long about the excellence and infallibility of God's word, but until you start applying it, putting it into practice, you're missing the point and liable to judgment. James, a brother of Jesus, has a similar warning in chapter 1, to 25. James says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Be a doer, not just a hearer, and you'll find blessing in obedience. This echoes Jesus' criticism of religious leaders who knew what they should do but didn't follow through. He told his followers, Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. What do we call someone who doesn't practice what they preach? Hypocrite. One of the key criticisms of imperfect churchgoers by those out in society, they can spot the gap between our life and our lip. So do become familiar with biblical teaching, but at the same time, be sure to put it into practice. Are you being obedient with what you already know? Why would God show you more if you're not already applying what you already have? That would simply be increasing your guilt. In closing, one more admonition from the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's that taste thing again. Try the word. You'll like it. Once you've tasted the pure milk of the word, by obedience let it help you grow up in your salvation. Through putting the word into practice, obeying it, we grow up, we become mature. A red loving Wycliffe missionary was washing her breakfast dishes when she saw Jimmy, the five-year-old neighbor, headed straight toward the back porch. She had just finished painting the back porch handrails, and she was proud of her work. Come around to the front door, Jimmy, she shouted. There's wet paint on the porch rails. I'll be careful, Jimmy replied, not turning from his path. No, Jimmy, don't come up the steps, Aretta shouted, knowing of Jimmy's tendency to mess things up. I'll be careful, he said again, by now dangerously close to the steps. Jimmy, stop, Aretta shouted. I don't want carefulness, I want obedience. As the words burst from her mouth, she suddenly remembered Samuel's response to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, for Samuel 15, 22. How would Jimmy respond, Aretta wondered. To her relief, he shouted back, All right, loving, I'll go around to the front door. He was the only one who called her by her last name like that, and it, it had endeared him to her from the beginning. As he turned around the house, Aretta thought to herself, How often am I like Saul or like Jimmy, wanting to go my own way? I rationalize, I'll be careful, Lord, as I proceed with my own plans. But he doesn't want carefulness. He wants obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the excellence of Scripture. Thank you for the inspiration, showing the authors what to write. Thank you for preserving it so and transmitting it down to our day. Thank you for the marvelous translations we have, which unpack the meaning. Um, and Lord, thank you that we can read. Thank you that we have ability to understand what you're saying to us through that. And Lord, uh, we thank you for Jesus pointing to it as something that we need to hold as very important in our lives. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us not just to understand, but to put it into practice and to know that blessing. In Jesus' name.